Our Father, we thank You this morning for the reminder of Your promises and Your steadfastness that You are a covenant-keeping God, a God who not only makes covenants, but a God who is trustworthy to those covenants to keep those covenants and to keep His people. You made promises to Israel, and those promises are sure. They're trustworthy. And because those those promises to Israel are trustworthy and their ultimate salvation is secure, so our salvation also is secure. The nation of redeemed Israel can trust you and we can trust you. Father, would you quicken our hearts to this truth and give us confidence in this truth and sanctify us by this truth. And would you conform us into people who are trusting of you, who lean on you and find you to be as faithful as you are. Father, as we come to this passage this morning, would you give us understanding? Would you open our minds to apprehend the truth that is here? Would you give me clarity with this and accuracy with it so that what is said about this text is true? and so that we might be changed by it, as we have just sung, into the glory of Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, Alexis Gould was a 15-year-old teenager in Magna, Utah, and fighting nerve cancer. The family was trying to figure out how to pay for Alexis' medical bills that were rising substantially, And in the midst of their debates, there became some public information made available about Alexis and her plight and and the the need of the family. And a businessman stepped forward and pledged $40,000 to pay for her medical bills. The family was elated. Um, You can just imagine that the massive amount of debt and the struggle and the burden and and caring about your child and, and then having not just the concern about the child but the weight of the financial pressure as well. And And now this was alleviated and it just seemed to be too good to be true. Alas, it was too good to be true. And so they sent Alexis to her medical treatments to the hospital and as those treatments were to begin... They opened that bank account to begin drawing from that account where the $40,000 was to be pledged in order to make payments for her procedures, and not a dime was there. The promise of $40,000 didn't come through. Nothing came through from that businessman. Even when it became evident who the businessman was, he never fulfilled his promises. The businessman was a fraud. Who does that? Who, who observes a family that's in plight and in crisis and extenuates their crisis by, by some kind of false hope and false promise and, and false assurance of, of something that, that he will give to them to help them? Who, who does that? That's, that's maddening until we realize that we also are promise breakers. As John MacArthur has written in one of his commentaries, it is human nature to break promises. Governments make and break promises. 
advertisers and politicians make and break promises, employers and employees, preachers and church members, parents and children, husbands and wives, and friends and relatives all make promises to each other which are often broken. Some are made with the best of intentions, and some are made in order to deceive and exploit. But all of us find ourselves both making and receiving promises that for whatever reason do not materialize. We live in a world and we live among and we are the kinds of people who are not promise keepers, but we are promise breakers. And because we are regular, regular recipients of broken promises and because we are so prone ourselves to break promises, it is tempting to make the assumption that God also breaks His promises. Especially when we consider that God has made promises particularly to the nation of Israel and, and those promises that were made first to Abraham and then to Moses and then to David and then to Jeremiah in the New Covenant that that none of those have yet been fulfilled. And, and it's tempting to say God's given up on His people. God also is a promise breaker. Don't succumb to that temptation. As Paul explains in Romans 9-11, to God is faithful. And His, His faithfulness is demonstrated in His salvation plan for Israel and for us. And that plan reveals that salvation is always the result of God's sovereign, merciful, and faithful choice. If, if you look at the process of salvation, it is always driven by God's sovereign hand behind it, a sovereign hand that is rooted in mercy and love, and a plan that will come to fulfillment. It is faithful, and God, who gave the plan, is also faithful. Salvation is always the result of God's sovereign, merciful, and faithful choice. My friend, if you are saved from God's wrath, you have been saved as a result of God's sovereign kindness to choose you. He has designed and planned and purposed for you to come to know Christ as Savior. And in fact, everyone you know that is saved from God's wrath is saved by that same sovereign, merciful, faithful choosing. In verses 6 to 18 of chapter 9, we are going to find five demonstrations of God's faithfulness. We're, we're looking these weeks at, at God's faithfulness to His salvation plan. And in these verses, we're going to see five demonstrations that God is faithful. And I want you to see, first of all, this week, the first two of those uh, demonstrations of God's faithfulness found for us in verse 6. The first of these is this. God is faithful. His promises don't fail. God is faithful. His promises do not fail. You'll remember from last week that that Paul gives a lament in the first five verses about the nation of Israel and her unbelief. He is sorrowful for her unbelief. And, and if he could 
substitute himself for their unbelief, he would be willing to place himself under the wrath of God so that the nation of Israel would come to repentance and be saved in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. He will say something similar in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He says there, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. I want Israel to know the salvation that was promised to them through Abraham. For I could testify, verse 2, about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So they desire God, they long for God, they, they speak about God, but, but it is an uninformed speaking about God. It is an un, uninformed zeal for God. They're not heading in the right direction. They really don't know what it takes to have faith in God in Christ. This lament is also an acknowledgement of Israel's rebellion against God. We saw this in chapter 2. When we looked at chapter 2, not only have the nations rejected God, but the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, have also rejected God. And and Paul's point all the way through chapter 2 is that your nationality will not save you. The fact that you are God's chosen people will in and of itself not save you. You cannot be saved apart from having faith in Christ. So this is what he says at the end of chapter 2. He says, It is not the Jew, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. So there's this act of circumcision isn't what saves you. Your nationality, your Jewishness is not what saves you. But, but he says in verse 29, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, there's an inward transformation that needs to take place. And, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. So outward circumcision doesn't save you. It's, it's only to be assigned to point to the fact that you need to, be, need to be circumcised inwardly in the heart. And it needs to be by the Spirit working in you and in your heart, not by the letter, not by, not by something you do to maintain the law on your own. And his praise is not for men. Look at what that man has done. Look at, look at how he has kept the law, how he has saved himself. But his praise is from God. That is, God looks at him and says, I saved you and I brought you to salvation. So, so there's nothing about the Israelites' position as, as recipients of the covenant made to Abraham that will save them. They need salvation by grace through faith. Israel has rebelled. Not only has she rebelled, but she has rebelled in spite of the tremendous privileges that she has. And Paul denotes those in verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites. That is, they have the covenant that has been given to them. They, they have Abraham as their father. They, they have a new identity, a new corporate identity as God's chosen people. And to them belongs adoption as sons and, and the glory. That is, they've seen the glory of God and the glory of God has resided in the temple and they have the covenants that were made to Abraham and Moses and David and Jeremiah and they have the giving of the law and they have temple service and they have the promises, all of the promises that God has made in all the Old Testament. And whose are the fathers? And not only that, superseding all those things, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. And, and the Messiah came from them and through them and to them, the Messiah who is overall the Messiah who is blessed by God forever. They have all this 
And they rejected him. And, and because Israel has rebelled, some might ask, has God been unfaithful to keep his promises to her? And will God keep us Gentiles in the salvation he has promised us? So if, if Israel isn't saved, what, what will happen to us? We're not even his chosen people. And if he has not saved them, what, what will happen to us? Yes, we, we read in verse 34 of chapter 8, who is the one who condemns? If you're in Jesus Christ, who can condemn you? We read in verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? If Christ has, has shed his love on you and granted his love to you, who can separate you from that love? But, but brothers and sisters, if God has rejected Israel, whom he loved and whom he chose, and whom he identified to be his, if he has rejected them, will he also reject us? If, if God was not faithful to them, will he be faithful to us? These are the questions that Paul is asking and answering in chapters 9 to 11. Is God faithful? Is God trustworthy? And Paul's immediate answer to this anticipated question is an unequivocal no. Notice verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word hasn't failed. I know you're tempted to say Israel isn't saved. God's promises failed. No, friend, that's not the situation in fact, when he uses the word but, he is introducing an adversarial thought. Yes, Israel had advantages that seemed to be misused and unused and misappropriated, but something else is going on. There's, there's something else that's happening, and it does not mean that God has failed. We, we should take this to mean that there is there is a massive contrast in God's economy that is different from what's going on in the world of the Israelites. And specifically, Paul says, says that in contrast to Israel's unbelief and their special position, God's word has not failed. The word failed is, is a somewhat unique word. It's only used one other time by the Apostle Paul. It's used by him in Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. He says, you have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law. In other words, if you, if you are trying to find your justification by keeping the law and obeying the law, you are removed from Christ, separate from Christ. You are not identified with Christ. You cannot be connected by Christ by keeping the law on your own. You cannot be justified and be righteous by keeping the law on your own. And then he continues, you have fallen from grace. That word fallen is the word he uses here for fail. There is no grace if you're trying to keep the law by works. Grace doesn't work that way. And, and the apostle uses that word in a very similar way here. He says it's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as if the word of God is is non-working. It's not as if the Word of God has fallen from its position as the Word of God. It is not fallen. It has not failed. God's Word cannot fail. Even when people fail, even, even when God's people fail, God doesn't fail and His Word doesn't fail. It's also important to understand 
as the Apostle Paul uses this little phrase, the Word of God, to understand what he means in this verse. Typically, when we hear that phrase, the Word of God, we think about the totality of Scripture. So we think about, we think about this book, right? So the Word of God does not fail. The Word of God is true. There's, there's no failure in God's book. And that is certainly true. But I think the Apostle is using that phrase in a slightly different way. He's using it similar to a different phrase that he uses in Romans chapter 3. So he finishes chapter 2 and talks about the, um, the Israelites and the Jews and how they've rejected God. And so he asks the question or makes the statement um, in chapter 3 verse, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? In other words, if, if, if Jewishness won't save you, then, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Verse 2, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the declarations and the proclamations of God. And I think when the apostle here in verse 6 of chapter 9 uses that phrase, the word of God, he's thinking about God's word in terms of God's speech and God's declarations, similar to what he says about God's oracles in chapter 3. He's thinking about, about God's promises, and particularly he's thinking about God's covenantal promises. And, and he means us to understand that God's covenant promises have not failed. When God spoke those promises, starting with Abraham... And though we don't yet see the fulfillment of them, that does not mean that God is unfaithful and that His promises have ceased and that they have failed and that they have stopped. We, we find similar kinds of realities spoken about God and His promises throughout the Scripture. Remember, remember the story about poor old Balaam and poor old Balak? Balak was... Um, hired Balaam to speak prophecies against the nation of Israel because Balak was concerned that that the Israelites, as they're wandering the wilderness, were going to take over his land. And he didn't didn't want them to take over the land of Moab. So he calls in Balaam and and says to Balaam, I want you to prophesy against Israel. And, And Balaam says, well... I can give you a prophecy, but I can only say what God tells me to say. And Balak says, bring it on. And he says, okay. And he ends up cursing Balak and blessing Israel in the process. It's, a, it's really, probably shouldn't read when you laugh scripture. Read, you shouldn't laugh when you read scripture, but it's hard not to when you're reading some of these stories, right? And then Balaam tells this to Balak in the middle of that, Numbers chapter 23. It says, Numbers 23, 18, Then he took up his discourse, and he said, Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? If God has spoken... He will make it good. And, and, and Balaam is addressing the very kind of thing that the apostle is talking about here, that, that when God speaks, it not only can come true, it must come true because of who God is and what His nature is and what His character is. Isaiah will say something similar in Isaiah 55, starting in verse 10. 
He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And, and we experience that, right? It, it rains. We don't get a whole lot of snow that melts, but, but we do get rain. And when it rains... Everything just blossoms, right? So Regine does all this native planting stuff so that it takes minimal amount of water. But when it rains, it just blossoms and it's brilliant. And you have these bright pinks and bright purples and it's, they're so vibrant. Even I notice that they're blooming. That's what the rain does. And similar to the rain, Isaiah says, or God says through Isaiah verse 11, so will my word be which goes from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without it succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So, so I am faithful to my word. I will, I will keep my promises and all of my promises will accomplish everything that they are designed to accomplish. My friend, Israel may not have believed God and Israel may have rejected the Messiah, but that doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. There is still time for the fulfillment of those promises, which is why the apostle says in chapter 11, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Has, has God rejected? Has God given up on the nation of Israel? May it never be. May, may that never come to fruition. How could God give up on his promises to his people? Chapter 11, verse 26, a little bit later in the chapter, he says, So all Israel will be saved. So the promises not only haven't ended, they, they will yet be fulfilled. Verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's gifts, God's calling cannot be reversed cannot be taken away, cannot be diminished. When God has made a promise, He will keep those promises. Well, friend, when we are in a situation where we don't receive what we think we ought to receive, or we don't receive what we think we ought to receive in a timely manner, it is tempting in those moments, particularly as we think about the spiritual benefits that we think we ought to be receiving, to say, God's not faithful. God has failed. God is a promise breaker. Oh, my friend, God cannot fail. God has not rejected His people. He will save His people. And, and if the nation of Israel can be confident of His salvation of her, then we can be confident of His salvation of us. He is faithful in all His ways. He has promised salvation to the nation of Israel and to us. And because He is a covenant-keeping God who cannot break His promises, He will fulfill His promises. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 Faithful is He who calls you and He will bring it to pass. He is faithful, and He will accomplish what He has promised. God is faithful. His promises don't fail. I want you to see a second demonstration of God's faithfulness also here in verse 6. And it is this. God is faithful. His election doesn't fail. His election 
doesn't fail. Now verse 6, he has just laid out, God hasn't failed, His Word hasn't failed, His promises haven't failed, His covenant hasn't failed. And then in the middle of verse 6, he inserts a little word, for, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And that little for indicates this is a reason. So God's word hasn't failed, and the reason that His God, His word hasn't failed is that not all Israel is descended from Israel. And when He, when He uses that term Israel, it is clear from this verse that, that He uses the term Israel in two different ways. Israel can refer to the national identity of someone. It can refer to someone whose physical lineage and heritage is from a country called Israel and from from the line of Abraham. So someone has has descended from Abraham and because they're descendants of Abraham, they are Israelites and they are Jews. But it's also clear from this verse that the Paul's using the term Israel in a slightly different way as well. That is, Israel can also refer to a spiritual heritage and a spiritual identity. So, so even though one is an Israelite, not everyone who is an Israelite is a true Israelite. They, they aren't genuine Israelites, not in the sense of their nationality, but in the sense of their spiritual connection to God. Again, that's the very principle that Paul taught in Romans 2, 28 and 29, that, that in order to be a true Israelite, you have to respond in faith. You have to have faith in God as Abraham did, and that faith has to terminate on the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if you don't have faith in God that He would provide a Messiah that would remove your sin, then you're not a true Israelite. This is the same thing that Paul will say in chapter 10. Remember I alluded to verses 1 and 2 about his longing for the Israelites to come and know Christ as Savior and and to know the fulfillment of the promises that were made to to Abraham. Notice what he says in verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, that is seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So they, they wanted their own righteousness. They wanted a righteousness that was separate from the kind of righteousness that God provided. And then notice what he says in verse 4. For or because Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So if you want righteousness, you need Christ. And if you want Christ, you must believe. And this, this was true of the Israelites, this was true of the Israelites in the Old Testament, that if they were going to follow Abraham, then they must follow in the kind of faith that Abraham had, that he would provide, that God would provide the Messiah that would come through him. And if you are post-Christ, after Christ, you must look back to Christ and look back to the cross. And the point that the Apostle Paul is making is that no Israelite can look to their physical identity as a source of their salvation. No Israelite can say, well, I, I, I'm an Israelite, that's enough. I'm descended from Abraham, that's enough. No, you need to have Christ's righteousness, and the only way to get Christ's righteousness, chapter 10, verse 4, is to believe in Christ. Now when the Apostle Paul says they, in verse 6, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, he's also introducing 
this idea that some are excluded from genuine Israel. Not all national Israelites have been saved. Not all national Israelites have been individually chosen and elected for salvation. And Paul is introducing with that phrase a theological idea that is going to dominate the rest of this chapter and really the rest of this section, chapters 9 to 11. And he is introducing the doctrine of divine election. He's introducing the doctrine of divine election, God's electing, God's choosing, God's designing, God's planning those who would be His. And, and he uses several terms in these passages, but, but two dominantly in, in chapter 9 and then into chapter 11 that, that instruct us about this doctrine. And the first word that he gives us is the word calling. The word calling. We see it first in verse 7. Uh, he says, Nor are they all children. So they're not all Israel. And they are not all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And that word named is actually a derivative of this word called or calling. So, so they will be called as God's children through Abraham and specifically through Isaac and his line. We also see this same principle in verse 11 and verse 12. Rebecca was pregnant. She had two sons, Jacob and Esau, in her womb. And it says, verse 11, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so there was nothing either commendable for them or condemning to them, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So they were chosen and they were separated at the time they were even in her womb according to God's call, according to God's decree, according to God's plan. We'll see this also in verse 24. Even us whom He also called not from among Jews only, but also among Gentiles. So God's calling salvation plan reaches beyond Israel and into the Gentiles. And so he says in verse 25, I will, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. Verse 26, And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So, so God calls and draws people to him that were not part of the original plan for the Israelites. That's the Gentiles. That's us. As we think about God's calling, as we think about, in a moment, God's election of individuals, what, what do we mean by those terms? And there's, uh, there's much that can be said about this, and we're going to try and extrapolate this for the next 20 minutes or so, but, but you can go back, listen to the message that, that I gave on uh, chapter 8, verse 30, and I think you'll find some help there. Um, would help if I'd have the right page on my Bible. Those whom He predestined, He called. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. We kind of played all this out back when we looked at that. Or you can go back about 10 years and pull up the messages off our website from Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. I think there's like three or four sermons on those 
uh, passages and those extrapolate in, out in more detail um, God's calling and electing work of uh, salvation. But let me let me just kind of give you the the quick overview of it this morning. As we think about calling, we understand that there is the the word calling is used in in two ways. So there is a general outward call that is made to all people everywhere. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except by the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. Now there, you have a lot of language there that helps us understand this is God's work of salvation. This is God that is drawing and electing. And then... Immediately following that, he says in verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, come and drink the water that is to be found in me. Come and have the life that is to be found in me. Come to me and you will have the refreshment and the forgiveness and the life. There's only life to be had in me. And you want the burden of sin taken away. Come to me. So that's, that's the general outward call that, that all men everywhere, Paul will say in Acts chapter 17, all men everywhere must respond to. All men everywhere must repent and come to Christ for salvation. But even that being said, We understand from Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 22 that not everyone will respond in faith. So he says in Matthew 22, many are called, but few are chosen. So so the call goes everywhere, but not all will believe and not all will have faith. So there's... There's the general, general outward call that you must respond in faith. And then there's a second way in which the word call is used, and it's used to refer to the inward specific call that compels those who receive it to repent and believe. We see this in, we have seen this already in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 4, speaking about Abraham and how Abraham came to, to trust in God by faith and was saved and justified By faith, it says of him in verse 17, Romans chapter 4, Just as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. So it says that about Abraham. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So so Abraham did not have a relationship with God and God called that relationship into being and saved Abraham by and through Abraham's faith in him. We'll see this also in chapter 9, verse 25. I, I call those who are not my people, my people. So God calls and he directs and he designs and compels to come to him those who are not his people But then after responding to the call, they become His people. We saw the same thing in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is He who calls you. So He calls, He draws, He pulls, He compels, and He will also bring it to pass. It It is His calling that draws us to Christ, and He brings us to faith in Christ. Peter says something very similar. First Peter chapter 5, he says in verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, 
who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, so God called you, God drew you, God compelled you, and, and everything that He did in calling you, He will bring that salvation to pass in your life. And friends, both of these calls are necessary for someone to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. We, we must have an outward call. So Paul will say in Romans 10 verse 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless there is a preacher? So there's got to be somebody proclaiming and saying, this is the pathway to God. This is the pathway to Christ. This is the pathway to salvation. There must be a general outward call But it also takes an inward call to have the ability to believe. This is what we saw in chapter 9, verse 11, right? It's God's purpose according to His choice, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. So so Jacob is saved because of God's inward call. Jacob can respond because God has called and wooed and drawn him. Without the inward call, it is impossible for someone to respond in faith to the outward call. What's particularly important for us to understand is that when God calls someone to faith, it is not a calling that can be resisted. It is, it is a gracious call and it is a compelling call. It is a call that lovingly draws us in. It is a call that says, I love you and I have set my love on you and I am drawing you in in love. And as God loves us in this particular way, we respond in love and faith to Him because He has irresistibly drawn us to Him. We who didn't love Him have been overwhelmed by His love and thus love to come to Him for our salvation. When He sovereignly calls, we want Him because we know in that moment that nothing else will satisfy us. He's loved us. And now we respond in love to Him because of His call on on our lives. This is the doctrine of divine election that is given in the word calling. There's a second word that the apostle uses particularly in these chapters, and it is the word chosen or the word elect. We, we have seen this in verse 11 of chapter 9 as well. If the Spirit who raised... Whoop, I keep turning pages. Um, chapter 9, verse 11, not 8, verse 11. Though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, so God's will, God's direction according to His choice, would stand. That word choice is the word that is sometimes translated election. So He has elected, He has designed, He has purposed, and that will stand not on the basis of works, but because of Him who called. So He called, and in the calling, He has elected and chosen those who would be His, and that choice stands. The emphasis of this particular term is that God has chosen us. God has selected us and, and we have not chosen Him. It's used, this term of choice is used both in the Old and New Testament. Let me just start by drawing your attention to some of the Old Testament uses. For instance, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses says about the Israelites, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has 
chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were fewest of all the peoples but the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And notice not only the emphasis on choice, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people, and He did not choose you because you were more than the peoples, but notice the connection between His choosing and His love. So He didn't choose you because you were more, but He chose you because the Lord loved you. The Lord The Lord loved you, and in His love and His favor and His grace towards you, He chose you to be His. Deuteronomy chapter 14. For you are a holy people to the Lord, verse 2. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So He's looked at everyone in the world, and He has said, I want these to be mine. Psalm 33, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen for His own inheritance. As we look at the way this word is used in the Old Testament, and there are numerous other examples as well, as we look at the way it's used in the Old Testament, what we find is that the God has chosen with an awareness of all the choices of all those who could be His, and He has purposely selected out of all He has selected a few to be His, to be His chosen people, Israel. And again, in relation to Israel, God's choice is emphasized to be out of His love and without any kind of merit on on Israel's behalf. So Israel hasn't merited God's favor. It is simply that God's favor and grace has been poured out on them. The New Testament uses the term in very similar kinds of ways. Luke chapter 6, speaking about Jesus, it says, He called His disciples to Him and chose twelve of them whom He also named as His apostles. So, so Jesus Christ knew all of the possibilities of those who might be His disciples and He chose the twelve particular to be His disciples, His apostles. John 15 Jesus makes very clear what's going on in the process of choice. He says, John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. This is, this is not man's choice. This is God's choice. Verse 19 of that same chapter, If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. I chose you. The Apostle Paul um, speaks in similar terms. 2 Timothy chapter 2, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Why, do, why does Paul do what he does in ministry? So that those who have been chosen by God will come to know Christ through salvation and by faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, 
constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. So here again, we see this connection. God has loved, and out of the love flows His choice of those who will be redeemed by Him. Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and the apostle of Christ Jesus for the faith of those chosen of God. So again, I'm writing, I'm serving for those who have been chosen by God, called by God, directed by God, drawn by God. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled by God. So he's writing to those who were chosen by God and planned and purposed according to his foreknowledge. Not just that he would know ahead of time, but that he would choose ahead of time those who will be his. In fact, we know that it's not just knowing that something is going to happen, but... 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 continues, For He, speaking about Jesus Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God. So, so God didn't just know that Christ would become the Savior of mankind, but He designed, planned, purposed for Christ. And in the same way that Christ's Redemptive work was planned in the eternal past, so our position as those who are redeemed is according to that same foreknowledge and that same choosing. As you, as you put all these things together, what you find is that it is, that it is God who is behind the framework, designing, planning, calling, drawing, wooing, bringing into salvation those whom He has designed for salvation. It's all His loving plan. In fact, as you take the word choose or the word elect, that verb is used 22 times in the New Testament. 17 times it's used with God as a subject. So God chooses, God elects, God designs. So a handful of times, five times, it's used of of mankind choosing. But every time man chooses something, it always relates to something temporal. So, for instance, it's used in Acts chapter 6 about about the apostles choosing those who will serve as deacons. So, so the apostles chose deacons. It's used in Acts chapter 15 that the church chose Paul and Barnabas to go out on the first missionary journey. When it's used about people with people as the subject of this verb, it never refers to man choosing God. It never says that so-and-so, Paul, Barnabas, chose God for salvation. In fact, Jesus has been very clear about that, right? He says in John 15, "Um, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And that's borne out by the way this term is used throughout the New Testament. It always refers to God choosing man for salvation. Man never chooses God for salvation. In fact, we could say 
If our salvation was left up to us, we who are enemies with God, of God would stay enemies with God. We, have, we would have no inclination in our fallen hearts to move towards God, to gravitate towards God. We would never choose Him on our own. God also has elected and chosen in light of all of the known options. God, God did not choose blindly without knowing the full range of options. He knows everyone. And He has specifically marked out those who will be His and draws them to Himself. And he, and he does this out of love. Not just, we don't just see that, that we are beloved by God and He chooses us, but, but the, the, the word also is often used with, with a reflexive pronoun. He chose us for Himself. He chose us to draw us to Him. He wanted us with Him. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a way of reflecting his love for us and his mercy towards us. This, this choosing is, is always in mercy. So he'll say in verse 15, For God says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. If, if I will be saved, it's, it's a reflection of God's mercy, God's kindness, God's love towards me. So the Apostle Paul uses these terms, calling and choosing or electing, um, to refer to the doctrine of divine election, his purposes and plans. He also uses a couple other words. We've seen these in verses, in, in verse 11. He purposes, he plans. Again, regarding the twins, Jacob and Esau, they were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, God's plan, God's intention, that is according to His choice, would stand. So, so it's God's intention, it's God's planning, it's God's purposing, not mankind. We see the similar word, uh, will, in verse 19. So then, so will you say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? So he has designed and intended, and who can resist that? So he has a plan, and who might resist that? And so we find in these verses, and we're going to find all throughout this section, this doctrine of divine election. And we find also not just the doctrine of divine election. In these verses, we also find an implied example of divine election. So back in chapter 9, we see in verse 4, um, this reference to the Israelites. So one becomes an Israelite by, by being under the covenant that was made with Abraham. And so there's a, a chosen people. And they have not only uh, this new identity as a nation and a people of God called Israel, but also, verse 4, they have the covenants. And so Paul is emphasizing, you, you have a unique relationship connecting to Abraham and the promises that were made to Abraham. And again, verse 6, he refers to um, their position as Israelites. And one comes to be an Israelite by being identified with Abraham. And then verse 7, he specifically mentions Abraham. He says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And it's, it's all a way of reminding us and reminding the readers 
that in order to be an Israelite, you have to be connected to Abraham. And, and Paul is subtly reminding us that, that what is true about election is not just true in our lives, it is true also in Abraham's life. So go back to the promise that was first made to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice notice this is all God's work. But it is God's work that has drawn Abraham and compelled Abraham. Chapter 11 tells us that Abraham was a pagan. Abraham wasn't inclined in the least to go towards God. Abraham wasn't moving towards God. Abraham wasn't interested in God. And then God spoke in Abraham's life and called him. And Abraham responded in faith and was saved. Abraham believed But it was God's choice and it was God's work that brought Abraham to sonship, which is, I think, what the Apostle Paul is alluding to that we've already mentioned. Chapter 4, verse 17, It is God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. God called Abraham into fellowship with him that didn't exist until God called. And this is, this is, this is the way divine election and divine sovereignty works in salvation. And friends, what I want you to particularly remember this morning is this, that these chapters are designed by Paul to address the question, is God faithful to keep His promise, particularly to Israel and particularly for salvation? And Paul's answer is, yes, God is faithful. If some aren't saved... It does not mean that God has not failed in any way. Everyone who has been chosen for salvation will be saved. If if God has made a promise, He will keep it. If He has designed sonship for anyone, that one will be made His son. We can trust a faithful God who will fulfill His promises. I appreciate what John Piper has written on this topic. He says this, Before the creation of the universe, God thought of me. He fixed His gaze on me and chose me for Himself. He did not choose me because I was already in Christ of my own doing, but that I might be in Christ. He did not choose me because He saw me as a believer, but so that I might become a believer. He did not choose me because I chose Him, but so that I might choose Him. He did not choose me because I was holy or good, but so that I might become holy and good. Everything I am and all I hope to be is rooted in God's freely choosing me. My faith, my hope, my work are not the ground of electing grace, but only its effect. And so there is no ground for boasting except in God. It is God's choice, and that choice is designed to stimulate our faith in Him. He is trustworthy. He will finish what He has promised. He is faithful. 
Our Father, we thank You for reminders of Your faithfulness, Your grace, Your goodness. Might that stimulate us to trust You, to find hope in You, to be confident in You. We thank You, Father, that for those who are faithless people who are promise breakers, that we can trust in You who is the singular promise keeper. You are a good God who is faithful to what You have promised us. Give us confidence in that this day. We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen.